0: One comes at the end of the Passover meal as Jesus breaks the bread and lifts up the cup and then points to both of them as signs of the offering of his body and blood for the sins of the world, what we refer to as Holy Communion. The other surprising movement by Jesus takes place not at the end of the meal, but in the middle of it, seemingly interrupting the remembrance of the Passover celebration. It is the moment when Jesus washes the feet of his disciples. After performing these two unexpected actions, Jesus tells all of us to repeat both of them as regular, visible indicators that we belong to him. Despite this, only one of these two movements by Jesus has been widely or consistently practiced in the history of the church. Only one has been officially labeled a sacrament in most parts of the body of Christ, Holy Communion. Foot washing, on the other hand, save for the occasional retreat or, of course, course, the Holy Week service, is something we rarely speak of, let alone practice as part of our worship. Why is that? Tonight, I'd like to reflect on this question. Tonight we will consider the neglected, and I hope, as I'll demonstrate to you, misunderstood significance of Jesus' practice of foot washing. The only reason we know foot washing occurred in the upper room is thanks to John. For whatever reason, the other three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, don't mention this at all. John, on the other hand, almost completely omits any mention of Holy Communion save for the smallest of inferences. Have we ever wondered why John did that? More than likely, John, being the last to record his memories of following Jesus, took it for granted we knew about what Jesus had instituted at the table in the upper room. Seemingly, John believed what we needed to hear, what should never be forgotten, is what Jesus did when he stepped away from the table before the first meal was over, before he established a new meal for us, washing the feet of his disciples. Really though, the bigger question is why did Jesus do both of these things? With all this business about washing our feet, why that? Why why when Jesus could have just gone directly to the bread and to the cup? Why engage in foot washing at all when Jesus could have just gone straight to the good part? offering us a new covenant? By way of an answer, let us stop and ask ourselves something. How did the disciples understand what Jesus was saying and doing when he instituted communion for the first time? I mean, we come to the table week after week hearing again and again words that remind us of what Jesus said and did when he gave us this meal. The interesting thing is, these words, I don't know if you've ever paid attention to them, don't really explain why Jesus says and does all this at the table. Our understanding of the meaning of Holy Communion has in fact developed in hindsight after the events of the cross, after thousands of years of reflection and debate in the body of Christ, which we still haven't resolved, by the way. But for the first disciples... With Jesus' journey to the cross still ahead of them, what would have been their reference point for even beginning to get what Jesus was saying and doing at this table? The answer, I believe, resides in Jesus' act of foot washing. The practicality of foot washing sets the table for the receiving of the mystery of the gift of Holy Communion. In other words, Jesus washes the feet of his disciples as a way of helping them understand both the words he speaks at the table when he offers them bread as his body and wine as his blood. And you can see this in how John specifically frames this picture of the upper room. We're told, John details for us, when Jesus got up from the table, John says, Jesus laid aside his outer clothing in order to wash his disciples' feet. This is intentional language. John is referencing back to Jesus' own self-description as the good shepherd, as the one, as he's put it, who lays down his life for his sheep. John wants us to see what Jesus is doing in taking up the basin and the towel is intended to shape our perception when Christ willingly takes up the cross. And John reinforces this association in the way he introduces Jesus's act of foot washing. He says this, you remember John, Pastor John just read it. John writes, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. It's interesting, the last part of that sentence can also be translated, Jesus loved them to the utmost. In other words, Jesus loved them with everything he had. It's not a coincidence that John's words here remind us of an earlier declaration John made about Jesus, perhaps his most famous one that nearly every follower of Christ has memorized. John 3.16 For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not die but have everlasting life. In this seemingly mundane act of washing feet, John perceives a redemptive analogy of God in Christ descending and dying for the sake of the salvation of all creation. Now, part of the reason why I I don't think we regularly practice foot washing in the church is because we fail to see things like this, exactly what Jesus is doing here. Despite John's efforts to fill us in, we still keep missing the significance of the basin and the towel, missing their significance as tangible gateways to understand the meaning not only of the bread and the cup, but the cross as well. What Jesus does here in washing his disciples' feet is not just a random act of kindness. It's not just about how nasty and gross the feet of his disciples were and therefore what a big deal it is that someone so important like Jesus was willing to get his hands dirty. My God, no more sermons about that. Jesus isn't simply putting on a morality play where the lesson is we ought to humble ourselves and be willing to do the filthy jobs that no one else wants to do. No. The act of foot washing is Jesus' final parable of the unfathomable truth and love of the reality of the kingdom of God. It is distinct from all the other parables Jesus gave us because this one isn't a story Jesus tells us. This parable is is a living one one that happens in real time as Jesus preaches to us from his knees and offers us the simplest but most profound explanation of holy communion and the cross and it's this cleansing received through us a humble act of service cleansing received through a humble act of service, provided not by a servant who looks to elevate his position over everyone else, but by the king of kings who lowers himself in order to serve us all. Here is divine love that begins to be expressed with water, that invites us and brings us repeatedly to the table and which is ultimately and decisively put on display on a hill called Calvary. But there's more. The way John recollects it, there is more meaning and significance for Jesus as to his gesture of foot washing. I don't know if we heard it. We're going to hear more of it after I'm done when we close out the reading in John 13. But Jesus also relates what he does to the call of discipleship he specifically points back to what he's just done and presents it as the definition of what it means to follow him. Jesus, in fact, frames the spirit and practice of foot washing by way of a commandment. A new commandment I give you, Jesus says. Love one another. Now, at first, this doesn't sound all that new, right? I mean, based on these first words spoken by Jesus this is the same old commandment going all the way back to Leviticus. I mean, didn't Jesus cover this when he was questioned as to the greatest commandment of them all? Everyone heard that answer, right? Love God and love your neighbor as yourself. Yeah, we've heard this one before, Jesus. We're called to love one another. And and love is not a foreign concept to us. People have always loved each other. I mean, the love between two spouses, the love between parents and their children, the love within a family or a friendship. As human beings, we've always known love, sensed it, witnessed it, longed for it, even if we've only flirted with it and never experienced it fully or perfectly. Love one another. Okay, not easy to do, but this is old news and not a new commandment. But then Jesus goes on. Just as I have loved you, you should also love one another. This is the new part. The distinctiveness of this kind of love, the basis and the means of love like this. What's new in the commandment, framed by foot washing, is the experience, the practice of divine love. We are called to love the way Christ loves As followers of Jesus, the new standard for love is love that is undying. Love that does not rise and fall based upon our feelings of attraction. Love that does not rise and fall based upon our own self-interest. Love that does not rise or fall on the basis of having what we put there reciprocated. No. In order to love like Jesus loves us, that is to love others unconditionally. To love like Jesus is to extend the grace we receive from him at the Lord's table. To love like Jesus is to live and treat others according to the principle of the cross. My life for yours. It is love, as Jesus points out, as he mentors for us by example that looks like foot washing. Too many Christians... Too many Christians have reduced following Jesus to basically doing nothing. Nothing except coming to the table and receiving the bread and the cup. We have done this in fearful reaction to abuses of grace where God's grace toward us has been made contingent upon our human works. And while it is most certainly true that we are saved by grace alone, it is also undeniably true that saving grace is never enough. Sorry, saving grace is never alone. Merit-based works righteousness, earning our way into God's good graces is one thing, a dangerous and flawed path that inevitably leads both to legalism and moralism. However, at the same time, The riches of God's grace, God's good graces inevitably, purposefully inspire our righteous living, reflecting the character and truth of Christ to others. The apostle Paul himself, a staunch critic of salvation by merit, once wrote, we work out our salvation with fear and trembling because it is God who works in us to will and act according to his good purpose. What John highlights for us in the upper room that no one else does is Jesus didn't say, do this in remembrance of me and intend for us to just engage in a ritual of breaking bread and sharing a cup with each other. Jesus bent down low looked us in the eyes and embodied a tangible, practical way of engaging what he calls us to do in following him. The ministry of the basin and the towel informs the meaning and the practice of how we gather around this table. Having been loved by Jesus, we love like Jesus. And we are enabled to love like this, like Jesus, only through the cleansing work of the cross and the continued nourishment of Holy Communion. The ministry of foot washing informs our better understanding of the gift of the table. The fourfold actions Jesus invokes at the heart of communion through his institution of the meal, take, bless, break, pour, share. What Jesus does in receiving us, taking us, Blessing us, being broken and poured out for us, sharing himself with us. This is what we are called to do with those we encounter each and every day. We are to receive others gratefully. We are to bless others wholeheartedly. We are to let our lives be broken open and poured forth liberally for others. We are to generously share our broken lives in Christ as bread and to share the cup of Christ's love for us with whomever is in need. But especially those who hunger and thirst to know that undying love, not loss, that life, not death, always get the last word in the story of God. We love in this way. We love like Jesus, not just by inviting others to the table or to the foot of the cross, but through revealing the living presence of God, the divine love of God expressed through Christ by getting down on our knees and washing the feet of others, meeting them not in the reverence of a sanctuary, but in the intimacy of their personal space serving them not by our perception of what they ought to receive but meeting them in the practicality of their immediate need so the final question for me is why don't we do this why don't we do this why has foot washing taken such a back seat in terms of our practice as the church I mean we can come up with all kinds of logistical issues it takes too much time it's so laborious to coordinate with so many people But even when foot washing is offered, and I've noticed this the last couple of years, and it's ironic we're not offering it tonight, but even when foot washing is offered at a worship service, so few of us actually participate in it. Why is that? Maybe it's because, like the rest of the disciples, what Jesus does here provokes more of our disapproval than our admiration. I mean... Peter, as you know, as you heard, becomes the fall guy in this story. I mean, he's always the fall guy, right? But he's the fall guy because, as always, Peter's just saying what the rest of the group is thinking. (laughs) Peter interprets Jesus' actions as beneath the office of the Messiah, the way he, Peter, understands and envisions that role. And this isn't the first time Peter has had this beef either. All the way back in Caesarea Philippi, after his spirit-led confession of Christ as Lord, Peter let the devil run wild with his expectations of the kind of Savior Jesus ought to be. And it conflicted strongly back then, and it still does now, with the actual Messiah Jesus is. Peter, you heard it at first, refuses to let Jesus wash his feet. Peter wants Jesus to get up off the ground, to stand up like the kind of leader Peter wants to follow. In a world that rewards rising stars, Jesus grabbing a towel and taking a knee is going the wrong way. Peter wants Jesus to act like a hero instead of taking a posture of a lowly servant. And beloved, we want the same in our assumption that the stairway to heaven goes up, we find ourselves uncomfortable with a God who in Christ comes down. We want heroes, not servants. I mean, heroes save the day and rescue us. Heroes show up, get us out of a jam, and then move on. Servants don't just rescue us. They do the deeper longer work of ensuring we remain clean. Servants don't just solve our problems and then move on. They move in and become a part of our lives, preparing the way for us and expecting us to follow. It makes us uncomfortable when Jesus gets down on his knees because we know inevitably Jesus is going to call us to do the same to meet him on the ground with our towel and serve others. We want heroes, not servants. We want to be heroes, not servants. We want to be heroes, not servants. When Jesus insists foot washing is how it's going to be, did you notice this? You'll hear it a little bit later. Peter doesn't miss a beat as he later boldly claims, I will lay down my life for you. I will lay down my life for you. If Jesus isn't going to be the hero, then Peter will take up the charge. Peter is sincere in his determination to defend the honor of Christ. But in case he didn't notice, Peter's self-confidence tries to make following Jesus into a competition among the rest of the disciples. A competition, by the way, he's already conveniently won. Sincerity is always a poor substitute for faithfulness. The ultimate irony is Peter, in trying to stand up for Jesus, is actually rejecting the character, the identity of Christ as the one who comes down, who is among us as the one who serves. And we're no different. Like Peter, we insist on our own version of heroic spirituality I mean, serving others is all well and good. Yes, by all means, let us serve. Serving others is all well and good, but the real brass ring we often end up chasing after is how we can make a name for ourselves in the service of Christ. How often we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against our need for approval and our obsession with recognition. But, beloved, no matter how far down we get in the trenches, if all we're looking for is to rise above the average, ordinary Christian, then we're not serving others. We're not serving Jesus. All we're serving is our own self-inflated ego. Name-only admirers of Jesus are never unwelcome in the kingdom of God. But eventually... They will find themselves uncomfortable in the upper room with the posture Jesus calls us to take to show the world we follow him. Jesus could have been the hero. Jesus could have been the hero, but he chooses to be the servant. And Jesus does this to show us how salvation happens and what love looks like. And then Jesus calls us to follow him, not up, up and away, but down on our knees with a towel and a basin. We all want to be the hero, but Jesus calls us to be servants, to lift up others by lowering our opinion of ourselves. The thing is, we can't be the hero because we can't save each other, let alone ourselves. We can't save anyone. We can't be the hero, but we can become servants. We can serve everyone by washing their feet, by entering into where they are hurting, where they are hiding, where they need to know they are not alone. We can serve everyone by washing their feet and entering into where they need to believe there can be forgiveness, where they need to see that there is hope in Christ. We can wash each other's feet as witnesses to undying love. Undying love is the eternal redemptive love that Jesus extends to us. Undying love is both gracious and costly in its giving first from the cross and then as it continues to be served up here at the table. Undying love is both gracious and costly in sharing it with others as we come down off our pedestals, as we lay aside our preconceived notions and predetermined biases, as we enter into our own passion narrative and take up our cross daily and follow Jesus. In the end, we don't wash each other's feet in order to cleanse them, to make each other clean. Jesus has already done this. We wash each other's feet because we, have been made clean by Jesus. And we are witnesses to what we have received. We get down on our knees to serve others because Jesus got down on his knees to serve us. Amen.